I'm soon going to be launching the Patients Getting Paid online course that will teach you how to get paid because of your illness, not despite it. Are you interested in doing patient advocacy work, but you don't know where to start? Want to learn about how to find online remote gigs or learn to create your own? I wish somebody would have created this roadmap for me. I spent a lot of time and energy and money figuring it all out. I want you to be able to leapfrog over all that stuff and get to the good stuff, getting paid for sharing your story. In my new course, Patients Getting Paid, I'll be sharing my experience and my resources on how to create an income online that lets me take good care of myself. Want to learn how I did it? Want a list of resources, places to look for online gigs, and templated emails with what to say? It's in there. Want to hear about tons of different ways you can actually build a business while taking better care of yourself? It's in there. Want to be included in a database of chronic illness warriors so your contact info can be shared when opportunities for your disease come my way? Then get on the waiting list for patients getting paid and be the first to know when it launches. Sign up now at patientsgettingpaid.com forward slash list. Welcome to the FUMS Now podcast show, where you'll gain information, inspiration, and motivation for living your best life with multiple sclerosis. Find us online at FUMSnow.com. I'm your host, Kathy Reagan-Young. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for hanging out with me again today. I'm excited for today's conversation about MS and bowel issues. A lot of people in our community are dealing with this, so I'm grateful to be able to bring some answers from an expert. But first, uh, before I introduce today's guest, let me remind you to sign up for our weekly newsletter, the FUMS Six Pack, where I share the top six topics in MS that week. Sign up at FUMSnow.com slash get the scoop. And to go along with today's topic, please head over to the page that features my ebook, Bowel and Bladder Issues in MS by Two Pea Brains with Potty Mouths Talking Shit About MS. Lots of practical suggestions from a pelvic floor specialist and my best friend, Aaron Glaze, and some kind of hopefully funny, smart-assy humor from me. <laughs> so find that downloadable ebook at FUMSnow.com slash ebook. So today's guest is Dr. David Leventhal. He is the director of the Gastroenterology Motility Center at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He received his doctorate in neuroscience and medical degree at the University of Pittsburgh. He completed his residency at the University of Michigan Health System and came back to Pittsburgh for gastroenterology and postdoctoral fellowship training. Dr. Leventhal's clinical and research interests center on functional and motility disorders of the GI tract, as well as GI symptoms that arise in the context of neurological disorders such as ding-ding, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, and stroke or spinal injury. He conducts basic translational and clinical research bearing on interactions between the brain and the gut with the goal of developing brain-based therapies for chronic GI disorders. That is a mouthful and very impressive. Welcome, Dr. Leventhal. Oh, thank you, Kathy, for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you. Oh, I'm so pleased you're here. Um, so let's start with something super basic, mm -hmm. came out of my super basic head, but what exactly is neurogastroenterology and how does that differ from gastroenterology? Right. No, it's, it's a great question. So, um, you know, the field of gastroenterology is, is pretty broad, right? I mean, the, the GI yeah. tract uh, includes 
uh, the entire digestive tract, the liver, pancreas, other uh, organs. Um, so within the field broadly of GI, um, there's so many issues that can plague the GI system, um, cancers and so on. So one of the subspecialties of the field is really the focus on the squeezing action or the motility of the gut. And when you start to talk about the transit or the actual the the actions of the gut itself, um, there's a mini brain that's in the gut um, and it's formed of nerves and uh, neurotransmitters and that receives um, instructions from the central nervous system. So this kind of brain gut connection is embodied in the field of neurogastroenterology, which is really focused on the neural regulation um, of the GI tract's functions. So, so, that's, so a neurogastroenterologist um, clinically focuses on disorders that are um, some aberration of the sensations that are felt from the gut, um, as well as the actions of the gut from a kind of a muscle standpoint. So that, gotcha. that's the field. Yeah. Okay. Um, are there many of you? <laughs> the reason not, I'm asking is enough. I'm just wondering, <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering, you know, for people listening, um, sure. I'm sure a lot of people's ears are perking up and they're thinking, I've never heard of this, but how do I get to one? Right, right. Well, you know, I think this field, you know, the the, the evolution of gastroenterology has always included this issue. And it's really only in the last perhaps 30 years or so that there's been a kind of a subspecialization within GI. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, as technology moves along and certain types of tests, um, there's really been a, a movement to kind of consolidate some of the training and, and um, kind of saying, I am a gas neurogastroenterologist. So there is the yeah. American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society, or ANMS, which is, uh, I'm a counselor for that organization. And on a national level, um, you know, there are a couple hundred people uh, that would, I think, brand themselves as neurogastroenterologists. Um, uh, but this is, uh, as I said, there's there's an increasing need because these disorders are not unusual at all. Um, yeah. This includes functional GI disorders such as irritable bowel syndrome and other very chronic uh, and common conditions. So obviously we'll we'll talk about MS, but um, you know a neurogastroenterologist really sees a whole range of patients that suffer with chronic um, digestive problems, um, and. I think every neurogastroenterologist would have an enrichment for patients that have um, neurologic disorders such as MS or Parkinson's, maybe spinal injury, uh, and so on. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that more people join the field. Yeah, and I will just a note to everyone, I will put that um, link that you just mentioned in the show notes. So, um, great. Thank you. Yeah. Don't drive off the road if you're listening in your car. I got gotcha. you. Okay. I got the notes. Um, so why why do people with MS have so many bowel issues? And and do they in fact differ from the general population like we think they do? Yes. So so you're absolutely correct. So so I mean it is very common for um, and then we have to be a little careful, right? So not everyone with MS has the same disorder, right? And I'm sure the same anything. <laughs> the same anything, right? So it's right. such a protean disorder. And, and I think yeah. the, all the caveats that I'm sure every guest and every discussion you've had with MS, it, it is not a monolith, right? But as a population, um, patients with MS, um, even in relative remission, likely have some GI disorders. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's a whole range. Um, and why is that? You know, that's it's a really good question, right? So we, you know, first of all, there isn't enough research even to document what the prevalence of some gastrointestinal issues are in the in the MS population, some very older literature. Um, I actually was a part of a study that um, tried to get at that issue. So, so just to be kind of clear, you know, so the most prevalent gastrointestinal issues with 
um, patients with MS, constipation, problems with you know bowel dysfunction, even fecal incontinence. You know those are not uncommon. Uh, constipation may be about forty percent of all patients with MS, and that would be about triple or maybe even four times the rate of constipation mm. in the general population. So so that's overrepresented in the MS population. Yeah, we're overachievers. Yeah, well, that's, that's one way to achieve, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so if you're going for fewer bowel movements, you, yeah. You um, so, so that right. So that there's clearly this link between constipation um, being a, highly overrepresented, and then there's swallowing issues. And you know, if you think about it, the two major issues that are pelvic floor muscle related, mm-hmm. um, you know, evac- you know, we're going to get into the details perhaps, but you know, evacuation of of stool requires muscle action. So it's not just the gut, right? So this right. is this is a place where um, the skeletal muscle system, motor system interacts with the GI tract. And it happens in two very major places when we swallow. So all of the muscles of our throat and, and the very refined timing of how we swallow, even if that timing is off by milliseconds, you know, th- there can be problems with dysphagia, which would be the medical mm-hmm. term for trouble swallowing. Um, and that's really actually a skeletal muscle issue. You know, that, this is the entree of food into the GI tract. So, so that can be a problem, and that's not an uncommon problem. And then there's actually moving your your bowels, which requires contracting your abdominal muscles uh, to generate force to go. You know, there's ultimately yeah. you know physics to pooping, um, right? So if things don't just come out, uh, you know, you need to push it out. So if you can't yeah. push, that in and of itself is a problem. Um, much less the sphincter mechanisms of the anal canal and so on. So I think it goes, it, it can seem pretty clear that um, ingestion and defecation are the two hotspots of issues for patients with MS that are well above population prevalence of these issues. Um, yeah. But there may be even more than that. And we can get into some of the other issues people have. I was going to ask you about giving us a breakdown of the range of issues that you see, but it sounds like you just did that. So 40% yeah. constipation is right. kind of the, the most common. Right. Yeah. There's yeah, an interesting subgroup. That, yeah. Yeah. And and I think there's one, um, we actually have a um, research uh, that we're going to publish hopefully soon. Um, it, you know, that initial survey that we did many years ago and, and published um, in MS Inter- International was the journal. Um, I, that was the 40% mark for, for constipation, but about a third of patients, uh, maybe about 30%, had stomach problems too. Now, when I say stomach, I don't mean just abdominal discomfort. I mean, you know, kind of referable symptoms to stomach issues, so feeling mm-hmm. full easily when you eat, feeling bloated, um, not having as much of an appetite, uh, having pain um, with mm-hmm. eating. Um, so that's kind of globally called dyspepsia. You know, the me- yeah, all these are all medical terms, right? So the mm-hmm. doctor would say, oh yeah, all those things I just said, dyspepsia. Um, mm-hmm. you know, almost like indigestion, right? So kind of a vague term. You know, you can drill down on yeah. the specifics, but about 30% um, have the, of MS patients had those symptoms. And we were trying to figure out what factors dictate um, if someone has that or not. Um, that has not been typically appreciated. So I think our research kind of uncovered a little bit of uh, more, more, not maybe not hidden, but, you know, just a, a, an underappreciated range of GI symptoms that are there too. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So um, the gut brain mm-hmm. link seems to be kind of a buzz term these days. Mm-hmm. And you're doing some research in that, are you not? Yes, yes. No, I, I that's so so I wear several hats. Uh, you know, clinically I'm the, the head of our neurogastroenterology center at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, but I also do research and, and my background is as a neuroscientist. And one of the major questions that I have 
And this is one aspect of this brain gut connection. But you know, there is it has been well appreciated for hundred years or more that um, our brain and our gut interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a two way street. I mean, obviously, we come to some conscious perception of what happens in our gut, hopefully not all the time, because there's a lot going on all the time. And we'd be flooded with right. if it was we'd be distracted a lot, we'd right. be distracted, right. So <laughs> so what happens in the gut should kind of be kept quiet, but it influences fascinatingly, um, our perhaps how we feel and our mood and so on. So there's this big story about microbiome, uh, the microbiota, the bacteria that live in the gut, mm-hmm. how that may interact with the sensation nerves that ultimately color our brain's function. So I'll, I'll kind of get to that in a moment. The aspect that personally I'm the most interested in from a researcher um, is actually the other side of the coin, which is how does our brain influence the gut? So remember, it's a two-way street, a you know brain to gut as well, a gut to brain, as well as a brain to gut connection. So the, a big question is just how, how could our brain influence our gut? And so there are nerves that are influenced by our, our brain. Um, one's called the vagus nerve, which is, I think your reader, your listeners may have heard. Um, and um, another set of nerves called the sympathetic nerve. So these are two kind of aspects of what's called the autonomic nervous system. So nerves that we don't typically think about having to volitionally control, but nonetheless are always programming our body's state, our heart rate, our breathing rate, our gut's action. And so what the research that I've been involved in is trying to answer the question, how does the surface of the brain, the cortex, the cerebral cortex, which is really where our thoughts, our volition, our, our behavior um, kind of originates, how do what areas of those of the cerebral cortex influences the gut? And you know how, and if we understood that, could that link to how we know that how changes in how we think and how we feel and how we move influence the gut? Is that the substrate, the, like the neural connection? And so we've been able to do that. And um, and I can, you can tell me if you want to hear more. But we we have a technique that we can map this, um, and that's kind of a foray to if we know the what's connected, then we can influence those connections. So. so you have a technique that you can map for each person. Is that what you mean? Right. Well, so, uh, well, it, there's a couple ways we can do this. So, so, you know, this is animal research to begin with. Um, so, you know, the, the idea is that, um, you know, all mammals have some link between their brain and their gut. Um, you know, Pavlov showed a hundred years ago that, you know, animals can change their gut function just with the appropriate cues. I mean, clearly this is a cognitive influence, right? You know, My mouth just watered that. when you said Pavlov. Well, there you go. All right. Sorry, sorry. I triggered, triggered <laughs> but, you know, Pavlov won the Nobel Prize for pancreatic um, physiology. It wasn't actually classical conditioning. It was like in the mm. physiology experiments, Pacific. they basically uncovered that this was important enough that it was a confounder. And, so, and then he was a good experimentalist and they figured out yeah, it actually matters who who the experimenter is, you know, sure. smells, sights, all these things matter for GI physiology. It's one of the initial insights. So um, that's through the vagus nerve is a major, major nerve, and both nerves matter. So I, I, without going into too much detail, essentially, the mapping procedure in animals, these were in rats. We're also doing this in non-human primates because we want to study a brain that's as close to a human brain as we can. Um, we use a virus, rabies virus of all things, mm. um, which I'm immune, so I can't get it. I've gotten my vaccination for rabies virus. But mm. um, but in an unvaccinated animal, rabies virus gets into the central nervous system because of a property of, of the virus itself. Anyway, you can use this neural 
tropic property of rabies virus to actually infect the nervous system. And when we inject it in an organ, like the stomach, um, the nerve endings that are there take up the virus and basically transport it to the brain. And it marches through um, a neural circuit. Anyway, we can use it as a circuit tracer. And that's the only important thing I think your audience here, and we can actually look at where those neurons are that got infected, and we can make a map of them. So essentially, we've been making maps of organs, the stomach, the colon, the adrenal gland, you know, other organs, you know, GI and non-GI organs. And what's emerged is there's, there's a common, some common sets of cortical areas that are linked to organ control. And the fascinating thing is, without getting into too much jargon, those areas are involved in how we think and how we feel and how we move. Mm. And so it really probably is the neural substrate of, of sorts of that top-down influence from the brain to the gut. Um, wow. So having that map gives us a, a handle on an idea of, is that present in humans? Probably is. Um, and could we target that with either brain stimulation or some other way to actually influence gut function from the brain side? So I hope that kind of makes some sense. So it does. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's super okay. interesting. Thank you. So I was going to ask you how this would inform, you know, how we treat bowel issues. I think you just answered that, but mm-hmm. something kind of a little deeper. I saw in your bio that you're researching things also like brain stimulation. Right. Um, so what can you tell us about that? Because that sounds like... Sure. There's a lot of interest and I, and I want to keep the conversation if we can, you know, toward MS just to, before I get into kind yeah. of brain stimulation, you know, why does it matter what I just brought up? So, so, you know, multiple sclerosis is a, is a central nervous system disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it can be um, not just white matter. There's a lot of appreciation that it's also, you know, could in effect the cortex or very subtle ways. So any disruption of some of the nerve connections that we know to be present, not just for the motor system, which has received, you know, our muscle movements, which has received probably most of the attention, but knowing the map of what areas are involved in organ control puts a little bit more concept to how MS could affect um, organ dysfunction. Mm-hmm. You, know, it, you know, it could be affecting certain pathways over others and knowing where those pathways are is really important. So um so Understanding think, that then informs treatment. Right, exactly. So where Got where it. could you influence? Now, MS is is a, an interesting disorder as a kind of neuroinflammatory disorder. Um, and, it, and it may be more widespread than one spot. Um, but it's always been hard to interpret. Your listeners may have had an MRI uh, or many um, uh, of their many, um, you know, of, of their head. And, you know, um, a radiologist will say something like, oh, you know, no change in stable white matter disease or, you know, the, the plaques are about the same size or, you know, but Mm -hmm. they never really comment on where they are. I mean, they might, but, you know, knowing what areas are more likely to affect certain functions is really important to interpret that map. And so, you know, clinical medicine is kind of operating at some level here, but we just, you know, from a research standpoint, I mean, we know more, a little bit more, um, you know, so I think, uh, you know, that might be a way to kind of put together things or at least predict yeah. symptoms or which ones might get better. So, so brain stimulation, I mean, there are many different ways to do this. Um, there's an interesting technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is basically using a, um, a rapidly delivered electrical current in like a little contraption that gets placed very close to the head. 
And that makes a magnetic field change. And you can actually stimulate, because of that magnetic field change, um, the, the surface of the brain, so, change. which is amazing. Yeah. I'm picturing Frankenstein. It is a little crazy, right? So these aren't two jokes <laughs> okay. on the, the sides. But um, there are techniques that kind of look like that, that direct electrical stimulation. But this is magnetic stimulation. It's been yeah. FDA approved as a treatment for depression when, you know, the thing is, this can be targeted to different areas of the brain very precisely. Mm. And so where would you, I mean, there has to be a way to use Target this. It. It's the gut, yeah. right? And so you need a map. And so that's why the mapping is so critical. because If this, enough. then that. Right. Yeah. Got yeah. it. I mean, I think I've tried to set up the, hopefully uh, people will tell NIH to give me money. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, no, just, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I have grants that basically give that logic. And I think it makes sense that it will work yeah. uh, or do something. Um, but we don't know. So that's what we're in the very early phases of, of trying. Well, and you say early stages. So like, mm -hmm. can you translate that into time? How long until you could imagine oh, right. that that would be something sure. that we could be looking for? Oh, yeah, that's always such a, you know, it's, uh, I know, I think I it's, won't it's, hold you to it, by the way. Well, but it's like when a scientist says, uh, you know, oh, in five years, you multiply right. it by whatever. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, we're not, we're not there yet. It'll, uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, within the next, I think, 10, 10 years, I think there's some oh. plausible way to kind of get there. Um, I'm optimistic because there are other ways of doing this. So um, your listeners may have heard of something called a vagal stimulator or vagus nerve stimulator. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be at the brain level. So one can get at these nerves in the periphery too. Um, and there's a lot of interest in using the vagus nerve at the neck, which it runs down, you know, kind of very close to our carotid artery, which is our, you know, you can feel your pulse mm -hmm. right there. So it's, you know, anatomically, um, you have a left and a right vagus nerve. Um, there are devices that can actually stimulate at the neck um, externally. Uh, the vagus nerve is actually used for migraines, which is interesting. So mm -hmm. um, the vagus nerve has been implicated in all sorts of functions, not just the GI tracts function, you know, immunologic function. Uh, it actually has an anti inflammatory. Um, arm of it, you know, wow. it talks to the immune system. And could MS be, you know, it's an immune system disorder, yeah. to, you know, could that be a target? I, I think there's so many interesting opportunities to think about non-drug ways of influencing the disorder um, that I'm not doing, but somebody could. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, I, you know, you, you speak of sort mm -hmm. of brain-based therapies, and that's so different from what we mm -hmm. um, are used to. Certainly, you know, it's mm -hmm. uh, heretofore been a lot of drug-based or lifestyle-based or something like that, but this sounds right. pretty exciting. This is kind of... Well, thank you. I, I, I mean, I'm not doing all of that research. I'm doing some of it, but I, I yeah. think it's important for your you know listeners to, to kind of have some concept that there is a very strong movement in research and medicine, modern you know, medical science right now, to try to exploit an understanding of the neural regulation of organs as the basis for a treatment for chronic organ dysfunction. So yeah. for example, high blood pressure, I mean, to the degree that it matters what kind of nerve function goes to your kidneys, um, Maybe those nerves, if they're not as if they're regulated a different way, you could have a different blood pressure. You know, your kidneys are very important for blood pressure. So mm. maybe you don't need a diuretic. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe it's actually something to do with the nerve function. So 
Um, every branch of medicine right now has its what's and it's even called electroceuticals, right? So pharmaceuticals would be you know drugs, cool. you know, electroceuticals would be some kind of nerve-based therapy for yeah. a wide range of disorders. So MS, I think, is you know certainly right in there and could be a possible target. Yeah. That's so cool. I love this. I love the the promise of possibility. Mm-hmm. of science. I love that. Yeah. Um, it gives mm-hmm. us a lot of hope. You know, that's why I love interviewing people like you that can, um, maybe it's not available right now, but I feel like saying hang in there because it's coming, you know? Yeah, well, um, we're, we're, it's exciting, exciting to be in the field. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I was going to say, um, so how do you counsel your patients to deal with bowel issues? So I made reference to, there's a lot of, you know, drug um, drugs <laughs> that that sometimes work, sometimes don't. I know um, food, exercise, um, you know, prunes, enemas, anything new in your arsenal or is this, we haven't gotten Uh, there yet. Well, you listed a a number of things. So I think it depends (laughs) on kind of what the problem is, right? So so I think let's, um, because I'm sure your your listeners want to hear a a little bit of clinical uh, application. So, um, you know, if we think about constipation, for example, um, and, and, and fecal incontinence, let's focus on those issues. So they are not mutually exclusive. There are some people who actually have constipation and also fecal incontinence, which is really a tough kind of double yeah. end. Um, and how could that be? So, so there could be issues that MS affects the gut in terms of the colon's speed of contraction right? So it's transit or, you know, it could be slow. And that really dictates kind of, you know, what stool looks like, unfortunately, you know, we have to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, the colon's job is to resorb fluid. Um, uh, and if it's, if materials in the colon for a longer period of time, it'll be physically firmer or harder. Um, so anything that can speed up the colon's speed up the colon yeah. or lead to a liquid, more liquidy environment could influence stool form. So if someone is constipated, yeah, it makes sense to do something like fiber. I'm right. sure many people have tried that, right? You know, so, you know, the, the question is, you know, that might be enough for some people, but not everybody. Um, and prunes, how would that even work, right? I mean, the prunes are essentially a uh, laxative in the sense that it contains a sugar, sorbitol, that our body can't absorb very well. Um, so it acts essentially like a, a medication called Miralax, which many people have probably heard about. Um, so prunes are kind of like a natural Miralax, right? Um, and again, that may work for some people, but beyond the over-the-counter kind of um, laxatives, um, one can actually medically stimulate the colon to contract a little bit more. So there are medications that, you know, uh, um, probably gastroenterologist feels more comfortable giving more perhaps than a, a primary care physician or a neurologist, but um, to me are kind of in our arsenal that we use all the time. So one can give a medication that boosts the vagus nerves communication to the gut, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Um, or surplants the nerve, but um, kind of targets the receptor for the vagus nerve. So those that's one approach. Um, there's another medication called prucalipride, um, uh, which uh, was recently FDA approved in the United States a couple of years ago that works on some of the enteric nerves that are in the gut itself and use serotonin uh, receptors. And that seems to have a pro-motility agent. So there are lots of, lots of ways you can kind of stimulate the gut. But what if fecal incontinence is there? 
you don't want stool form to be too runny um, because that's going to be a problem. And what's the problem with fecal incontinence? You know, weakness of those muscles. This is my way of saying the sphincter muscles, right? I always use my fist. So, you know, the anal canal, (laughs) sorry, I I talk with my hands. Um, You know, that muscle's tone matters for the gait between what's in the rectum and what comes out or uh, volitionally or not. And stool form matters a lot. So you might want to actually go the other way and firm up stool. Um, fiber can do that, but then slowing things down might be important. So things like emodium, um, you know, so if a stool is too runny, changing stool form is probably the biggest factor to pr- prevent fecal incontinence. So these are kind of like general interventions that I would use for almost anybody with these problems. Patients with MS just have a higher prevalence of these problems. So there's no, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the things that I kind of would use in patients that I see, which I see a lot of uh, patients with MS, um, really is just kind of taking the whole toolkit we have and applying it to that patient. So it's not, it's not really MS specific, um, but then you it's have patient to- It's patient-specific. It's patient-specific, right, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, just the, the range of issues that MS patients kind of uh, face is the same range of issues anyone can face is just skewed toward more likely to have kind mm-hmm. of than, than an average person. Um, yeah. So does that kind of help a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. hundred um, percent. Mm-hmm. So since, since we went down this path, mm-hmm. um, sure. can we talk about the makeup of a good stool? So um, I know sure. that there is a, I'm trying to think of, I can't remember what it's called, but there is the Bristol stool chart. Yes. The Bristol stool chart. And so it is. Um, so can we talk a little bit about like what's normal? What should we look right. for? What's good? What's bad? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess I've always uh, struggled to kind of just do this with uh, just verbal description. I should have brought the little chart, right? I don't, right. I don't have it. But um, so I'll put a link in the show notes yeah, to the Bristol Google. stool chart, yeah, by the way. Yeah, right on yeah. the, yeah. So, so, so Bristol, yeah. the, like UK, the city Bristol, you know, B-R-I-S-T-O-L. Um, so this scale is a visual kind of analog of like, what does your stool even look like, right? right, um, right. And this is um, a seven grade one through seven scale and um, one being um, and just to go for it, I'm going to say, you know, rabbit pellet, like right, bring it hard on. stool um, yeah. balls or hard things um, would, if you just describe that, that is constipation. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so from a clinical trial perspective, just even saying I have type one stool, crystal stool um, would kind of say, yeah, 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 you have constipation. So All knowing that way, could save you a lot of misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. you know, in, in our clinic, you know, we actually use that scale. So it, it's kind of, you know, just cause it's a, uh, you know, it, it, it's a common language, to common language. Yeah. You say, oh, a patient's describing type two sta- you right. know, stool or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, now um, all the way to seven being just a total puddle of Mm-hmm. So, okay, I, I won't go beyond that. But puddle of poop, be, I'll say it. Right. Puddle, puddle of poop, right. So colonoscopy prep, like, you know, right. kind of, you know the right. stuff that comes out, just water. Um, but what is the perfect poop, right? And so, you know, the from a um, just a definitional perspective, you know, type three to five would be like the range of normal. And that would be mm-hmm. some things that have form, um, anything from, you know, it's not really a length, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's just, you know, the perfect poop would be, you know, formed one piece all out, feel like you got it all out. Um, and that does magically happen for some people, but now, you know, a lot of patients with MS don't have have that. Yeah. So that would be 40% don't. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So (laughs) these issues are very common in the general population 
overrepresented in, in, in MS. So, yeah. so that's the Bristol stool scale. Yeah. Got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. So what's um, normal is no blood, right? Just to be clear, yeah. I, mean, I said what's normal, right? So this is stool form. You know, you can't have red blood in your stool. Um, mucus is not unusual. So a lot of people say, oh, I had mucus. Uh, that's, that's okay. A little bit. Um, so it's yeah. really down to blood, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. So, so no blood. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, you know, overall, I think it's really important that we say you should be looking. Yeah. Right. Check. Because, I mean, I mean yeah. wiping. You know, yeah. Blood, but yeah, I mean, I take a gander. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> Make sure that things are looking like they should. <laughs> exactly. um, sure. I think all of this is super exciting and I think hopeful. The kind of research and everything that you're doing that you shared with us today. Is there anything mm-hmm. In your research in particular that you're really excited about? I mean, I think it's all super exciting, but. Oh, thank you. Sure. Um, well, I listen, I, I appreciate, first of all, thank you for having me here. It's really Absolutely. great to Thanks have for being a here. platform to you know communicate with lots of people out there. Um, I, I think, um, you know, the, the work I kind of mentioned about the mapping really does get me very excited because it's the first um, kind of real visualization, not just of the where, you know, the, what areas of the brain are connected to the gut, but also kind of their proportion, which I didn't really emphasize, you know, what areas are heavily represented, which areas have a little bit of a connection. And, you know, I think, you know, with every different method scientifically that comes out and available to study a question, you learn a little bit more. And I think um, I've been very privileged to be a kind of the, um, this kind of early phase of this next way of looking at this problem. And so we've, we, you know, published a paper last year about the stomach um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's, we're going to be coming out with a few more papers in the years to come. So that, that gets me excited because it's really helping to just inform a question that's been around for so long. Um, you know, what areas of our brain control the gut? And so, um, and that has a lot of influence on the field. So that makes me, keeps me going. And I, and I love patient care. And I think, um, you know, uh, we have a very close relationship with our MS group, uh, at UPMC. Um, and I, that's been very gratifying to kind of codify a, a, a little bit of a, we don't send as many patients to them as they send to us, but that's okay. You know, we're here right. to work with, and they're actually partners in our research too. So it's a very productive collaboration for patients and also from a science perspective. So, um, Excellent. yeah. So. Great. Well, thanks so much for being here with me today, Dr. Leventhal. Really appreciate all this great information. And like I said, I think you gave us hope too, which is a, can be in short supply sometimes. So if people want to learn more about you or your research, your clinic, where should they go? Well, um, right. So, I mean, I, you can, I have a web presence, uh, you know, as a clinician and, you know, so if you were to um, even Google Leventhal, L-E-V-I-N-T-H-A-L and UPMC, you'll, you'll quickly get to my clinician page. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is at Leventhal David, um, all one word. Um, not too exciting of a handle, but I, I <laughs> um, gets the job done. Gets the job done. That's me. Um, and uh, yeah, those are pretty much the ways to get. Uh, Excellent. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. I'll put all that in the show notes as well. So, again, Dr. Leventhal, thank you so much for your time and um, and for working on our behalf. We very oh. much appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was great. Quick shout out to Steve Woodward at podcastingeditor.com for the fantastic work on this podcast, including editing, show notes, and ingenious ideas. If you'd like help with your podcast, whether you're just starting out or an old pro, 
visit podcastingeditor.com and tell Steve I sent you. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate you listening to the FUMS Podcast Show. Be sure to subscribe to it so you won't miss an episode. You can do that right on the website at FUMSnow.com. While you're there, sign up for the free email list so you'll be among the first to know of any new findings in MS research, new therapies and products, as well as any blog posts and podcast episodes I release. Want to chat with others in the FUMS community? Join us on Facebook at FUMS Now. Thanks again, and don't forget to talk to the stupid disease as it deserves. Tell it FUMS every day.